This episode of Straight Up was recorded in November 2016 and features Collier Meyerson from Fusion, Sarah Leonard from The Nation, and Harry Siegel from Newsweek and The Daily Beast in conversation with me, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits, on the future of journalism under Trump's presidency. It's official. Donald Trump is elected the president of the United States of America. Winning the most unreal, surreal <laughs> election we have ever seen. I mean, there are people in my neighborhood in Northwest D.C. who have no idea Donald Trump has got elected president. Mm -hmm. They're going to freak out when they win. You're awake, by the way. You're not having a terrible, terrible dream. Also, you're not dead and you haven't gone to hell. This is your life now. This is our election now. This is us. This is our country. So election 2016 has surprised a lot of people, made a lot of people angry. And next to Donald Trump, the biggest target of anger has been the media and how they cover the race. And the question, Collier, is did the media create Donald Trump? I mean, the short answer is no. I think that there was a really fine line between covering things that were actually happening, like these massive um, rallies that Trump was holding where people of color and protesters were getting beaten up and Trump was offering to pay, like, you know, fit the bill. Um, and then sort of sensationalizing it. I mean, these things were actually happening and so I think it was the job of the media to cover it, but there were also other things happening. There were middle class to affluent white white uh, voters in the Midwest who we just did not pay attention to. Um, people sitting over dinner tables in Wisconsin quietly talking about how they were going to vote for Trump. And we really missed the mark there. What about, I mean, it's interesting, at some point the campaign takes on a dynamic and you have to cover it. But in the early days when the cable networks would cover the Trump rallies as live news events, I mean, that's like uh, some estimates he got $2 billion of free airtime. I mean, that's a, that's a significant boost to any candidate. He probably wouldn't be here without that, right? Sure. I mean, when people blame the media, I think it's important to ask which media you're talking about. Right, not the media is not the same. <laughs> yeah, we did not do it. Um, but there is a sort of um, publicly responsible media that does not get quickly swept away. I obviously like to think the nation is part of that. But also, we have all been critical for a very long time of uh, television media consolidation. That's not actually a new story. These are massive profit-making enterprises. Trump is objectively more entertaining than anybody else who was running for president. In fact, he was already an entertainment celebrity. He started on WWF, actually, not The Apprentice. Check that out. Um, <laughs> and so even now, coming out of this election, where we know that consolidated media resulted in profiting off of Trump, which will be all of our demise, um, AT&T is trying to create a new merger with Time Warner, right? They're buying Time Warner. Um, and this is yet another corporate merger that's going to limit local ability to produce television like we're enjoying right now. And I think this is something to keep an eye on going forward, but it's not a new story. It's not surprising. And I think blaming the media as a whole is a little ridiculous. And also, like, we can talk about this more, but Trump obviously reflected a real trend in how people felt and a trend that's global, not just in the U.S. I think the media likes all these conversations because then we're still at least talking about the media and the influence it <laughs> it's has. It's all about us. <laughs> so, so, you know, look, the confidence in the media is at an all-time low. 
it dropped by half among Republicans from the 30s to the teens in the course of this cycle as Trump talked about the crooked, rigged, stupid media, you know, made fun of the crippled reporters and did all that stuff. Um, and that's terrible. But like, it seems to me that there were larger things going on in the country and that our institutions are supposed to channel and reflect that stuff and that the parties uh, and the media more or less failed to do so and Trump overran those, those channels. Um, the idea that, that, that we have this huge responsibility to inform and enlighten, and if we'd done that better, this all would have played differently, I have, uh, I have some real issues with. Like, who's this we? Um, I mean, anyone with a Facebook account can put news out. Any news that's compelling can circulate rapidly, uh, be it true or not. Um, I think TV networks, and the cable ones in particular, bear some real responsibility for all this, that, that, that they had their horse race early on, they had their carnival with Trump, and that they did give really valuable airtime um, to him early on, and that, that they downplayed Sanders, even as his uh, numbers showed real support. He was, uh, he was a footnote for uh, months in the race, if you were watching on television. And what specifically about social media? I mean, if 2008 was the campaign when Barack Obama kind of made the internet a campaign tool, this was the year of Twitter and to a lesser extent Facebook. Uh, how did they perform in feeding stories to the media? How do they perform in sort of covering stories themselves? One of the things we're seeing is that because so many people got their news from Facebook, for example, um, like Facebook and Google are being held to account as media organizations to change how they surface content for people to see. So like what these companies do now or what Facebook does is they design and they maximize uh, their algorithm for engagement. They want you to stay on Facebook and like do stuff, whatever that is. They don't really care what it is, but they want you to stay on. Um, and people are saying maybe that's the wrong metric. Maybe if the thing that maximizes engagement is something that also results in people seeing tons of incorrect information and being really angry about things that are not true um, and everybody is using Facebook, you owe some sort of public responsibility to actually shift the no. way that you're structuring that no. platform. No. No, no, no. So, so the, the old media business and the news business is completely broken. Um, there, there's this new ad distribution business. These few places are in that say, we're, we're not a media company. We're not influencing these results, right? Uh, so you can trust us. And then it turns out, wait, you can't really trust them. Um, and so the response being that they have a public obligation to get this better so that they can more reliably serve ads so people don't leave their networks. That's not, that's not who I want to trust our, our discourse to. I don't want them to decide, you know, this footage of a uh, naked child on fire is okay, this footage is not. Uh, here are the deaths we can see, here are the deaths we can't. I mean, we have like the InfoWars White House right now uh, because of the, this paranoia about our, our information and distribution channels. I, yeah, I would also add that, I mean, um, there was a woman who, her name was Corinne um, Bales, I believe, um, in Baltimore, and she was live streaming uh, her interaction with the Baltimore police, um, which eventually led to her death, and Facebook took that post down. So this is already happening, right? And I, I'm wondering, you know, okay, we don't have trust, we shouldn't have trust in Facebook, we shouldn't... Um, put our faith in them but but clearly this is already happening and so there needs to be some sort of stopgap right like we need to have something in place in order to determine 
you know, what can and cannot be shown on Facebook. The 2016's storyline is largely about white working class voters and whether um, their intentions and the degree of passion they had was, was missed by mainstream American newsrooms, maybe all newsrooms. And implicit in that question, or explicit, is the, is the idea that elites in the media um, are simply too out of touch geographically or socioeconomically to get what those people are feeling and to hear them. That, I mean, that, that's, that feels kind of on target to me. Yeah. I think there's something there. I just wrote a piece about this, actually. Um, and I would put in the poor white working class as opposed to um, the white working class, because obviously white working class people, we can identify them um, as folks who make over $30,000, between $30,000 and $120,000, depending on what their job is. And it's more of an identity than it is really a socioeconomic position. But yes. The short answer is yes. We knew in May that Trump voters, the median income for Trump voters was $72,000. We knew that in May. <laughs> you know, like what were we doing? On, like what I was talking about before, only filming, only giving coverage to uh, folks who we deem as the poor white working class at these rallies with holding up their Confederate flags, blah, 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 um, saying all of these sort of like incendiary things, um, and not concentrating on the Trump voter that makes a lot more money than that, who might still obviously identify as the white working class, but makes more money than that. Yes, we that was a giant miss. Giant, giant, giant miss. That, to me, was the biggest mistake that the media made in this election cycle. I, I'm totally with you there. And I would add that um, typically the journalists who are in all of those places that the media failed to cover were local journalists working for local papers which have since anymore, right. disappeared um, or been bought up and disbanded. Right. Um, and so when people talk about like the media elites not caring about the white working class, it's like, well, being a journalist did not used to be just some sort of elite profession in New York. There used to be local papers where that was your day job for a lifetime of middle class work, and you did it where you lived. And so I think the disintegration of that system of local newspapers and so forth was very detrimental during this election in actually getting the kind of coverage we would have needed, exactly what Collier's talking about, to understand what these voters were thinking. And I could not agree more about the class question. You know, depending on where you are in the country, the demographic of the Trump voter may be sort of working class. And it's hard to say what that means when we're only talking about it by income bracket and not by nature of what your actual job is and what your life experience is. But like that's middle class in a lot of these communities. Yeah. It's not poor. And so it's like looking at poor people, people of color, especially as you know the sort of scroungers who are like living off of the taxes paid by the $72,000 a year cop or small business owner or whatever. Um, and that's a narrative that I think got lost yeah. in a lot of this it's conversation about demographics. Issue. I mean, Clinton, the median income for a Clinton supporter was $61,000. It's a lot less, you know? And we're talking about the, the narrative in media now has been dominated by, oh, the white working class was, was um, you know, dismayed by by the, the the sort of like Clintonian 
like machine slash legacy. NAFTA. Exactly. And and that's like poor people voted for Clinton. Like that's not true. And so we really have to change the way that we're looking at this, I think, entirely. We relied on bad numbers. So a lot of what we're talking about is just like a narrative and like, you know, how the sports coverage gets shaped and all that is uh, the the, the magicians who got 2008 and 2012 right did not predict the right group of voters that are coming out. In fact, all across the world, they keep missing these populist things. They miss Bibi's re-election, they miss the Columbia Peace Deal, they miss Brexit, and they miss Trump. So new people are turning out and old projections are breaking down. And so this isn't just narrative stuff. It's uh, here's what the numbers are showing. And so if past results are any indicator, which they haven't been, uh, here's where we're at. The second thing is uh, the media is not elite. Uh, you know, shout out to everyone who uh, sends me angry notes. You know, uh, uh, you, you, you'll find out soon what it's like in the real world. Uh, the media is, is, is small, it's in financially lousy shape, it's underpaid. You lose these small town papers, um, you start clustering the media in big cities that have very different politics and, and people and issues. Uh, you know, like what, what, what it means to have guns here, what it means to have immigrants here is just very different and should be. Um, and, and this is where all the reporters are based. They're looking at lousy numbers that, that have come to be revered. And one of the few places where, where journalist, journalistic operations have been investing money. And uh, you have this, uh, this, this massive blind spot and it's just been, uh, it's just been exposed. And now those, again, those same smart people are trying to uh, explain how we got here. So here we are now, and now the media will have to turn from uh, self-examination of how it covered the campaign to in, in 60 some odd days covering a Trump administration. So what do you think is going to be the challenge, the difference for the media in covering a Trump presidency compared to the 44 previous presidencies we've had? I mean, two fundamental ones. Uh, showing what is not normal and is really terrible without overreacting to every small thing that flixes that as though it's the apocalypse, which I think the media did a, a pretty lousy job of in full over the course of the election. A few places with bigger budgets and longer attention spans did better. And the critique of the White House press has always been that it's half co-opted, that, that, that you work in and basically in some ways for the White House and you need your access, you need to get called on at the pressers and get your TV time. So maybe Trump blows up some of those dynamics. Maybe a lot of those traditions break down right away. Um, and then Trump is hoping that as he did in the campaign, that the media oversteps, complains in the wrong ways, and that he gets to counterpunch them, counterpunch them, counterpunch them, and play on the suspicion that most Americans at this point have of the uh, press. It worries me a lot that that's a, a tremendous breakdown in just having responsive institutions and a president who has to answer like certain baseline questions. So there are trends and then there's a, a clear break from them. I mean, one thing we saw at the Trump rallies in some cases was reporters being harassed, threatened, physically intimidated. Uh, Megyn Kelly says she got death threats. Do you think, Sarah, that that kind of thing ends, that the campaign period's done, or reporters really have to think about a very different kind of personal environment in which they're gonna work? Well, I think this era will clarify for journalists that being a journalist is about being permanently in opposition is about, and you know not being at home at the White House or anywhere else. I actually think most journalists know that. Um, and I think that television news is maybe, you know, it occupies a fuzzy realm between entertainment and journalism and it's a little different. But I mean, 
I think that this is a good opportunity for journalists to just be relentless. I mean, this is a sloppy administration. It's already sloppy as hell. And like, you have people going in and out of the transition team. You have leaks all over the place. As soon as someone's hired, they're fired. And notably, Trump has already started betraying all of the promises that he made to his base, right? So his team is full of lobbyists. He said he's going to drain the swamp. Um, he has one meeting with Obama and he's like, well, I'd like to keep two pieces of the Affordable Care Act. You know, this guy is not going to stand for any of the things that his people wanted, which is not to say that he's not going to be terrifying. Um, and I think it's the press's job to sort of relentlessly expose that. I will say that what's scary under Trump is that he seems to have a really um, interesting relationship with libel law in that he would like to see it expanded in America as it is, for example, in the UK, which is terrifying because as we saw with the Gawker case, um, if you sue a small media organization and you have a lot of money, you can put them out of business and that's one oppositional force down. That's terrifying. And the last thing I'll say is having Steve Bannon, who ran Breitbart, still sort of runs Breitbart, I guess, <laughs> Um, who is a white nationalist who will be in charge, not in charge of, but presumably of some access to um, the massive surveillance and security apparatus that the United States has and which Obama supported and built out. That is very terrifying for, I think, any media organization, certainly for a smaller lefty one like mine. And so the degree to which we all become very serious about things like encryption um, and keeping our journalism safe, I think that's going to escalate enormously and it's hard to judge exactly what that'll look like. So Collier, we mentioned libel laws. Another law that's pretty important is freedom of information. And you know, presidents and governments generally are not too great about complying with that. Um, but the tactic we've always had is to shame them, to say if they don't give you the secrets, to say they're keeping secrets. But Donald Trump defied all precedent by not releasing his tax form. So I think that weapon is is gone, right? We have, yeah. shame is not gonna work against this administration yeah. when it comes to secrecy. Gonna FOIA you, Trump? Mm, He'll be I'll like, what's you. that? Right. <laughs> well, I'll, no, I'll sue you. So how do we get, how do we make Trump transparent? Um, I have no idea. Like, that's actually just my answer. I mean, he doesn't have rules. It's like, yeah. they're, they're like just exactly what chaos. you're saying. There are no principles to hold him against. So there's a bigger question when it comes to media and Trump, which is that since the election, uh, certainly in newsrooms I've interacted with, journalists I've talked to, there is a palpable sense of shock, even among reporters who aren't particularly political. Um, and there have been ex public expressions of that, I think, by some news agencies because of the Trump relationship with the press. And some of that has, you know, frankly, I think you could objectively say, um, broken with the tradition of being kind of removed from commenting on who's won an election in that, in that fashion. Um, Sarah, do you think that people in the press are generally going to retreat to their traditional approach to a president like Trump? Or have we entered a new era where um, people are going to take sides much more openly than they have in the past? I've actually been very disappointed with what I've heard many members of the press saying upon Trump's election. Um, Collier and I were talking about this, which is, you know, people saying sort of right off the bat, well, you know, the election is over. We have to give him a chance. Like, you know, 
this is how American democracy works. We survived Nixon. Some people didn't, you know? Like, some people didn't survive any bad administration we've ever had. People didn't survive Reagan. People didn't survive Clinton's cuts to welfare. There are people who suffer. And like, is the press going to go under tomorrow? No, actually most members of the press know that we're about to enter like a big fight with Trump. It'll probably be good for us for a while. Um, there's a lot to be afraid of, but fundamentally, uh, most of the press cannot be destroyed overnight by Trump coming in and blustering and yelling on Twitter or even threatening journalists at rallies. But the people who are going to suffer are, so if he gets in and immediately gets rid of DACA, you have thousands and thousands of people who put their names on a list, which is now gonna be handed to Trump and he's gonna withdraw his protection, he'll destroy their lives. So Collier, do you think that the next four years or however long the Trump presidency lasts, uh, might ch change our, the, the definition of advocacy journalism, right? Which is obviously a, a weighted, freighted term. But uh, if those are the stories we're covering, I guess a lot of people who might not consider themselves advocacy journalists will become that, if we still call it that. Yeah, I think if you look at MSNBC, which um, I, full disclosure, worked for for four years, um, went through during the Bush era this like giant. They, I mean, they did phenomenally, right? So then once Obama was elected, it was, oh gosh, how do we rejigger everything? We're not doing well. We're failing in the ratings. The ratings are horrible. Nobody wants to watch us because people, because Americans are complacent. Liberal Americans, I will go out on a ledge and say, were complacent during the Obama era. And now I think MSNBC is probably going to revert back to this is the, the like progressive liberal place for politics um, where it had been abandoning that um, identity for the last, I'd say, year and a half. So I think you're going to see a shift back to advocacy journalism. Harry, is Trump your president? Sure, he's my terrible president. <laughs> and I, I think that's a useful way. I, I don't need to wait for him to uh, start doing terrible things to know that. He's promised a lot, and he's uh, working out ways to act on them now. Uh, I think treating him in a normal sense, this is what a president should do, and then holy smokes, this guy is a, uh, is a healthy and calm way to point to that, uh, that space. So does the media have a responsibility to make sure the right conversation takes place? And how does it how does it do that? Look, like I think it's pious to say that we control the tone of a conversation. Like our job is to find information that other people can't find on their own. And so if one thing Trump is gonna do is turn this into some like crazy oligarchic situation where his children are running his business under his name, making deals abroad, he's running the government, everyone has security clearance. There's a lot of material for us to work with and to provide to people. It is a job of organizers, activists, to organize people around that information and they can decide what kind of tone they wanna take. I don't think that's a thing we dictate. You know, people know their material circumstances and they want to have power in their own lives. They want things to get better. It's our job to like be thinking, okay, what kind of information do people need? Like, what do we contribute to the sorts of motion happening in this country? Um, so I don't 
you know, obviously if we go around writing only polemical pieces, that's actually just like not useful to anybody. I think, I don't think it contributes well to the tone, but it also doesn't contribute to anything else. Whereas if we're like doing the work that is our job, like I think that's a contribution and other people can worry about the tone. What's, what's your role um, beginning January 20th at noon? Advocate, um, journalist, some combination of the two, how, do you, how are you going to approach it? Report things. Find new facts, put facts together in important combinations, get that new information out there because that's what the press is for and what it's good at doing. So that Americans who want to organize, who want to be active, who want to find ways to resist what I think are going to be some very dark years ahead, have those material. And so that Americans who don't see that way can also look at and fairly judge those things. Um, but if we're doing our job, reporting and putting out information, like the rest is, uh, is, is up to the American people, you know? So the media uh, took hits from just about everyone in this uh, election, and so we're going to now toast that by having our drinking game revolve around that. So I'm going to read a quote by some prominent person, a politician, and if you can correctly identify the person who said it, you don't have to drink. If you fail to do so, you will have to. Do we just like shout it just out? Just shout it out. And if you all shout it out correctly, then I'll have to drink. Got plenty to go. Okay, first one. The media is an arm of the ruling class of this country, and they want to talk about everything in the world except the most important issues, because if you talk about real issues and people get educated on real issues, they actually may want to bring about change. Bernie? Bernie, all right. Oh. Everyone drink. Harry? <laughs> when reporters act like jerks, you need to treat them that way. Donald Trump. Trump. <laughs> the guy is a complete idiot, self-consumed, underpaid reporter. Donald Trump is not correct. Oh. You have a shot. No, no, you shot at the answer. Do you have a guess? Oh, well, I'll drink and I'll say Chris Christie. Chris Christie, yes. Oh, I'll put All it right, down. Yeah, Nicely done. Down. Save your... They sound so similar. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? Quite frankly, having an uninformed populace works extremely well, particularly when you have a media that doesn't understand its responsibility and feels more like it's an arm of a political party. They can really take advantage of an uninformed populace. Let me give you the options for this one. Was that Rand Paul, John Kasich, Ben Carson, or Hillary Clinton? Rand Paul. Yeah. yeah. No. Ben Carson. Everyone drink. Oh, no, that sounded that smart. He always sneaks up on you. <laughs> He's a neurosurgeon, after all. I'm not going to have some reporters pawing through our papers. We are the president. We are the president. That's strange. Was that Marco, uh, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, Jeb Bush, or Hillary Clinton? Hillary. Hillary, yes. All oh, right, God. guys, drink up. And the last one. <laughs> if the disgusting and corrupt media covered me honestly and didn't put false meaning into the words I say, Donald I would Trump. be beating Hillary by 20%. Some Let's jerk. All. Let's all drink to Donald <laughs> and to a better day for the media. Cheers. Cheers. The Straight Up Podcast is produced by Megan Donis, Shrianka Ray, and Sasha Mathias, and is recorded on location at Bedford Hall in Brooklyn. For more information, visit BrickArtsMedia.org.